Hey, this is a Hakawadi production. My guest today is a Lebanese-American journalist known for her politically progressive views. She's a producer and host for In the Now, one of the U.S.'s top content producers, where she produces content for the Soapbox series. She's the host of two podcasts, including Left Bitches Who Are Right and Unauthorized This. Please welcome to the show, Rania Kalik. Hi, Rania. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me on. So you're Lebanese-American, you live in Beirut, but your content is primarily focused on American news and policy. Why? Well, I was born and raised in the U.S. And um, I actually became a when I became a journalist, I was still living in the U.S. I've only been in Beirut for the last about three or four years. And I'm, I'm mostly back and forth because my immediate family is still in the U.S., Um, but yeah, I mean, that's my home country. I'm like completely entrenched in U.S. politics and U.S. culture. That's what I grew up around. But since you're living here, how come you don't talk much about politics in Lebanon or in the Middle East? So you're living in Beirut. Um, there's so much to talk about. Well, actually, I do. I talk quite a bit about it. Uh, a lot of the videos that I produce are based on, you know, are, are about the Middle East. A lot of my journalism has been about the Middle East. And that's actually what brought me back here, uh, in the last few years is actually traveling to, I mean, not just Lebanon, but also Syria and Iraq um, to report on various conflicts there. Um, so, yeah, I do actually talk quite a bit about the Middle East, and it gets me in a lot of trouble because uh, people don't always like what I have to say. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, and it's obviously like living here, um, you know, I have a lot of opinions about what's happening around me because I'm personally affected by it. I guess what I meant is that you're really entrenched in American politics and the way that you talk about it. Um, and I know that you often relate it to the Middle East um, and how it affects the Middle East. But I think people first would want to know about the network you work for. You work for a network called In the Now, a millennial-focused news channel with millions of views. You produce content on current affairs, including videos on YouTube and podcasts uh, for a series called Soapbox. And In the Now is owned by Mafic Media, a company registered in Germany with a head office in Hollywood, but majoritarily owned and operated by RT, the Russian television network funded by the Russian government. So all news organizations have some kind of agenda, even if they try to conceal it. CNN has an agenda. Fox News has an agenda. How would you describe the agenda or the political views of Mafic Media? And why do they have these channels operating in the U.S.? Well, so Mafic Media actually now is a U.S. Uh, LLC. It's no longer a German company. It's like a it's like a separate company, and it's owned majority by Anissa Nawe, who's my boss. Um, and uh, we're actually in the process of suing Facebook right now um, for labeling us Russian state-funded media. But uh, that's beside the point on this. I mean, I can't speak for Mafic as a media outlet. Um, I can only speak for myself. Uh, and I mean, I have free range to basically say what I want, how I want. Um, and as a U.S. leftist and a progressive and somebody who's vehemently anti-war, um, it's one of the few outlets that I'm able to express those kinds of opinions without being controlled um, or without being censored, um, particularly with relationship to the Middle East. I mean, one issue that I have been very vocal about in my entire journalistic career has been the issue of Israel-Palestine. Um, and, you know, American media is a place where 
if you want to move up in the corporate mainstream press, um, that's not an issue that you can talk about honestly. Uh, you have to either, you know, act neutral or you have to, you know, spout pro-Israel talking points. Um, so, you know, as a leftist, this is one of the few outlets that I'm able to kind of like have those opinions without being censored. And I really, you know, I'm really grateful for that because I'm able to have a platform to talk about those things. Um, and, you know, I've worked for a lot of outlets, like no matter where I work, I have the same opinions. I've, you know, I've worked for Al Jazeera. I've worked for Vice. I've done work for The Nation. I've done work for like a, you know, a lengthy list of independent media outlets on the left. Um, so my work doesn't change. Wherever I go, it remains the same. I'm pretty consistent. Well, thanks for clarifying that. You're you're right. It's uh, 51% is the number that I read that is owned uh, by the CEO of Mafia media who's based in the US. Um, well that that was well that was that was previous. Like that was when we had a German company. It's now an American company. Um but that's I mean that's besides the point. Like I you're right, every media outlet has its biases. And I think it's important it's important for people to recognize that whether, you know, it's you're whether you're talking about a media outlet like Mafic or whether you're talking about media bigger media outlets, you know, like CNN. Or, I mean, when it comes to U.S. media, the vast majority of them are owned by these mega corporations. I think like six, five or six corporations in America uh, own like 90% of the media that's produced, uh, which is kind of insane. Um, and so there's agendas behind everything. And that's why media literacy is super important. I mean, we're no longer uh, owned by our, we don't, we know a part of us is no longer owned by RT, but I mean, with RT, like, or with Al Jazeera, like I wouldn't tell people to go to RT to you know, uh, to, to get really serious, uh, critical information about Russia. Right. I also wouldn't look to Al Jazeera to get critical information about Qatar. I wouldn't necessarily look to the BBC to get critical information about, you know, the inner workings of the British government. Um, and I think it's important, important for people to understand that that said, I think all of those media outlets have something to offer. Um, and I think, you know, people should be consuming everything, with sort of that understanding that, okay, like who owns this? And maybe there's certain issues that I shouldn't be looking to these outlets for if I want to see, you know, um, if I want to see critiques of certain things. So where should people go to get, you know, real information on what's happening in those countries politically? I mean, I'm not saying don't go to those outlets, but I just think that you should like not limit yourself to what you're reading. I think you should be consuming everything you can. I don't think you should be like, Uh, just, you know, going to one place to to understand what's happening in the world, because you're not going to get a clear picture. You're only going to get one side. I think it's important. Like, I'm not saying don't go to RT. I'm saying go to other places, too, to give yourself like a full view of all the, you know, different vantage points of what may be taking place in this or that country. Yeah, I think you, we've pretty much clarified this whole idea of it's important to look at who's behind media. It doesn't mean that you're not going to get valid information, but definitely you're getting a certain picture, which might be different than the picture you're getting somewhere else. Um, but I know right. that I know that you've been very consistent in your views throughout your reporting and you have certain um, ethics that you obviously adhere to in, in your reporting and things that are important to you as a journalist. But both Russia and China have been accused of interfering in the election process and through social media channels in the last few years in the U.S. Do you think that Russia ultimately would like to see the end of the American empire 
What's your take on that? And do you and do you think the end of the American empire is upon us? I mean, I can't speak for the country of Russia. I don't know. You'd have to ask like Russian government officials. But I do think the vast majority of countries around the world would certainly like to see, uh, you know, a, a different kind of America as, as it relates to the rest of the world, whether that means an Indo-American empire or not. It's more of like the sort of behavior that comes with that empire, right? So I think that countries like China and Russia certainly would like to see an America that engages more uh, in diplomacy rather than militaristic adventurism and, you know, sort of financial bullying through uh, sanctions on various countries to get its way. Um, as for election interference, I mean, uh, you know, this is, when it it comes to the U.S., this is like the last, you know, since Donald Trump was elected, this is like the go-to for both sides, both Democrats and Republicans. You know, when their side doesn't win, their new go-to is just to blame another country rather than actually reflect on the reasons why they're losing. Um, with the Democrats, you know, they're always blaming Russia. It's Russia, Russia, Russia. They spent the last four years, you know, pushing Russia Gate, which ended up being like a huge dead end because a lot of it was based on a whole lot of nothing. And then, of course, you have the Republicans try to do the same thing by saying, oh, China got Donald or China got Joe Biden elected, uh, which, you know, has no basis in fact whatsoever. Um, but this is really just a way to like deflect uh, from having to look, you know, inside uh, and figure out, like, what the hell is wrong? Like, what's going on? Like, why is somebody like Donald Trump getting elected? Why is the, you know, why is the far right on the rise? Why is there so much anger at the status quo and the establishment? And, you know, Democrats and Republicans are both both deeply at fault for that, and they don't want to own up to it. Well, I'm going to so say, other countries. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to say I don't have all the facts and data on who interfered, how. Obviously, it's a very complex situation, but obviously social media has a huge role to play in who gets elected, how people are come together or are divided in any given country. And in the U.S., social media is especially powerful right now, I think more so almost than traditional media, which is why platforms like In The Now and Mafic Media are investing in these platforms, especially they're quite effective at um, communicating to millennials. So so I think we can't deny the, you know, the fact that that played a part. But Whenever there's a change of political party in the U.S. administration, everyone starts talking about the policy changes that we can expect. And with the Biden administration, they've mostly been talking about environmental policies and rejoining the Paris Accord, for example. Do you think we'll see any meaningful foreign policy changes in the Middle East with the Democrats in power? I, I do, actually. Um, I think that you know the Donald Trump administration ended up being... Uh, the entire Middle East policy ended up being run by a bunch of like fanatical neocons and like rapture ready, uh, like crazy people like Mike Pompeo, um, who just their entire policy was just uh, this sort of like fanatical anti-Iran uh, view. And that really shaped everything that they uh, pushed around the Middle East in this very cozy tight relationship, not just with Israel, but like with the with the right wing Likud party in Israel and with the Saudis. I think um, under a Biden administration, you're going to see uh, a move back towards what you saw under Obama, which is, you know, trying to restore the Iran nuclear deal. A lot of the people that Biden is appointing 
uh, for example, Secretary of State uh, Anthony Blinken, were people that were, you know, played a major role in negotiating that deal. It meant a lot to them. They like, you know, lost sleep over it and spent, you know, months and months and months. Um, so these people are going to try and go back to this nuclear deal. Uh, and I think that's very, I think that will be a positive development for the Middle East, uh, because, you know, what you've had is this maximum pressure campaign that does, hasn't just impacted Iran, it's impacted even Lebanon, um, during a really terrible economic, uh, collapse. Uh, so I don't know, I don't, you know, you're not necessarily going to see a change in policy on a place like, for example, Syria. I think Syria is going to continue to be sanctioned, um, and, you know, that's going to be very bad for that country. But I do think that you're going to see uh, definitely like a a uh, like a decrease or, you know, a, a, you know, uh, moving away from likely war. Like if Donald Trump had won a second term, I think you would have seen a war with Iran uh, that would have been really devastating for the region. So I think that's a huge positive development. Um, you know, I mean, obviously, the Republicans and the Democrats don't differ too, too, too much when it comes to foreign policy. But, you know, on this issue, there's a pretty big difference. I think that you're going to see, as far as, you know, policy in the rest of the world, it's going to mostly be the same. You're, you know, the U.S. foreign policy kind of remains on a trajectory, on a certain trajectory, no matter who's in charge. Uh, and so you're seeing more of a move in the U.S. in the last 10 years or so uh, towards this kind of escalation with China um, and this sort of move towards great power competition and away from the, you know, a move away from the war on terror. So I think you're going to see more of that. Uh, you know, it's going to kind of be a continuation from what we've already seen. Like we're, you know, you're going to have a pretty um, virulently anti-Russia, anti-China administration in the Biden administration. And it's not going to be that much different than Donald Trump, except maybe, you know, the trade deal won't be so crazy. Or I'm sorry, the trade war with China won't be so crazy. Yeah. But a lot has happened uh, since Trump has been in power, including the Israeli GCC peace deals that we've seen. I doubt that a lot of those will be rolled back, obviously. Right. So, so I want to talk with you a little bit about that and about Israel. I know you made a video for Soapbox a few months ago about how Palestine has become a testing ground for Israeli weapon, weapons, which is a great uh, video that you made, by the way. Highly recommended. There's Thank so you. much information there. It's very eye-opening. So obviously, you're not a fan of Israel. What are your, <laughs> <laughs> what are your thoughts? That's one way to put it. <laughs> yeah. Just being polite. <laughs> <laughs> What are your thoughts on the peace agreement uh, that they've signed with the GCC countries? What do you think will come of it? Do you have any hope left for Palestine? Um, and let me just finish that question with, uh, in an address at Berkeley in 2015, you said you compared Israel to ISIS, which is a pretty controversial thing to say, especially in the U.S., in a university, no less. First of all, <laughs> I'm surprised you made it out alive, to be honest. But do you still think that? And what are your thoughts on the peace deals? Well, so I'll start with that last part, since that was the most controversial. Um, you know, when I, when I make that comparison, you know, obviously they're not exactly the same. But my point is to say that you have these sort of two entities that are based around this, like, ethno-religious supremacist worldview uh, that seeks to have a state um, that, you know, is you know, that purges, like, minorities, right, and that has, you know— Um, that has this like religious sort of zealotry at the center of it. Um, and that's what you saw with ISIS. And I think that's what you see with Israel as a state, um, especially as the far right in Israel becomes, you know, uh, more powerful. That's what you're seeing in that country. 
is the far religious right is uh, gaining power um, and having you know larger and larger influence over society and actually gaining seats in government. I mean, some the, the kinds of people I'm talking about, like people refer to them as like the Jewish Taliban. They actually seek to to build a third temper, temple over the Al-Aqsa Mosque and start like a sort of Armageddon-style apocalyptic war. Um, so these kinds of people are coming to power to Israel. That's like the future of Zionism, which is the you know ideology uh, at the heart of the Israeli state that seeks to have this you know Jewish majority state in a part of the world that is not necessarily majority Jewish, that has all these Palestinians uh, living in it. And these kinds of people actually like want to purge them completely. So these are the people I'm talking about when I'm saying, you know, there's this compare, you know, when I'm com making this comparison uh, to ISIS. Um, and it's really, it, it really is alarming, uh, the sort of like politics uh, that are gaining traction in Israel, a country that the U.S. spends over $3 billion a year arming. Um, it's actually terrifying when you think about the kinds of people that were arming in that country. But as for the peace deals that you mentioned, I mean, they're not really peace deals, right? They're not, it's not like Israel was at war with the UAE, you know, and Bahrain and, um, and like Morocco. If anything, it was, ever, it was only ever just a war of rhetoric. So, I mean, as far as peace deals go, I don't really know how you can make peace with a country you were never at war with. But they are, of course, you know, deals to be concerned about because what the end result will be is normalization of Israel across the region. You know, and you already see that with, you know, all these flights going back and forth, you know, between the Emirates and Israel now, you're going to see like, you know, a closer cultural ties. So that kind of stuff is certainly concerning. And I don't, and I think you're right, I don't see the Biden administration, even if they might have been against these sort of deals, I don't see them having any incentive to roll them back. They'll probably just leave them in place. Um, you know, I mean, ideally, what I would like to see in the, what I would like to see is I would like to see a one state solution in Israel, Palestine. I'd like to see a place that's like one democratic country where all these people can live, where it's, you know, not about ethnic or religious supremacy. But the reality is, you know, that's not the case. I think that moving forward, you know, you're going to continue to see, you know, further Israeli uh, control over, you know, the West Bank, possibly at some point, like eventually they'll annex it. Um, and I think you're going to continue to see this sort of strangling siege over Gaza that no one seems to really care about anymore. I mean, a few years ago, we kept hearing from the UN that by the year 2020, Gaza would have no, no drinking, like wouldn't have drinking water, the water in Gaza wouldn't be drinkable. And now it's the year 2021 and nothing's changed. Um, and you know, when I taught the video that you're talking about, you know, I, it is true. Like Israel's entire economy is based around its military industry. And one of the reasons it has such a successful, uh, like military industrial complex is because it has this captive population of millions of people who have no rights, who it controls completely. And it has to use all these methods of domination and control in order to exert that sort of uh, control over these people. And that leads to all kinds of technological advancements, uh, whether it's, you know, building border walls and this, these like sort of surveillance, this, this surveillance apparatus and then selling it to the rest of the world as, you know, being uh, combat tested or or whether it's you know building you know new drones um, and new bombs that it can then sell to the rest of the world as being battle proven, you know these are sort of like the these these are sort of like the stamps of approval when you're selling weaponry, and that does put Israel ahead 
in this sort of like military technology. And so, yeah, you do have this this population. Palestinians are like this population of guinea pigs where weapons are literally tested on them. And then Israel makes all this money selling them as being, you know, battle proven around the world. And it works. The world buys Israel's weapons based on that. Yeah. And you made a great point. The so-called so-called peace agreements or peace deals are really more like economic deals. And a lot of people stand to benefit from those, including these American firms who are buying equipment from Israel and and having, you know, presumably business deals also in the UAE. It makes things a lot easier for everyone. But at the same time, by the same token, it leaves Palestinians in a much worse position. And also Lebanon, where you live, mm -hmm. it's hard to see how the any kind of weight or pull that this country might have had before can be maintained now that the channels have been opened for the rest of the region, it, Lebanon kind of becomes irrelevant in some way. Right. And, you know, it also there's there's this, you know, also, I mean, I'm sure you've noticed here, there's this kind of like new trend uh, where people are now more openly saying Like, well, Lebanon should make peace with Israel, which is not something you really heard people saying publicly uh, before this. But this has sort of like opened the floodgates to that as well. Um, and obviously, Lebanon's very fractured on how it views what should happen in the future with Israel. I mean, there's, of course, people in this country who would be happy to go the route of like the UAE and other countries and think that the, you know, the... Uh, the conflict that with Israel and like Hezbollah are the main problem in this country. And then, of course, there's like the other half of this country uh, that's very supportive of Hezbollah and like would never, uh, you know, will die before they'll make peace with Israel. Uh, so it does also puts Lebanon in, in, in a sort of new, maybe even a little bit more dangerous situation. What do you think, Rania? Do you think that Lebanon should make peace with Israel? <laughs> uh, I mean, no, I don't. I don't think Lebanon has a reason to make peace with Israel. I mean, there's parts of Lebanon that are still being occupied by Israel. There's a dispute with Israel over the, uh, you know, maritime border, uh, over, you know, oil that Lebanon, you know, that, that belongs to Lebanon. There's also the fact that there's, you know, hundreds of thousands of Palestinians living in Lebanon Uh, who aren't able to return to, you know, the villages that, they, that their families came from because of the conflict with Israel. There's just so many open conflicts that remain. There's also war crimes that have been, you know, committed in the past by, you know, by the Israelis against the Lebanese. I mean, there's a, there, you know, before you can even start discussing that, there's like a million open issues that, you know, haven't been closed yet. Um, and I'm not quite sure how you close them, but I certainly don't think that, And then also there's the issue of Palestine. You know, there's an issue of solidarity here. Um, you know, Palestinians have been being kicked out of their homes since 1948 by the Israelis and since before that. Um, and, you know, they're, they're, they're the neighbors to the South. And you can't, like, how do you make peace with, you know, let alone not just, not just the issues that affect Lebanon, um, not like directly, but just the issue of Palestine in general. Like, how do you make peace with a country that's still ethnically cleansing people on a daily basis and demolishing their houses? And like, it's literally just like a rock's throw away. Well, I imagine that the things that you mentioned that need to be resolved would be part of any agreement. And some people might say that this solidarity is sabotaging 
our country that if we had peace and we put this aside and and as all the other Arab countries seem to have done, that we could move forward and put all of that behind us and kind of move forward with the world in a, in a more uh, peaceful and economically sound way. It depends who you're talking about. I mean, it depends which part of the country you're talking about. I mean, there's people in this country who weren't affected by the Israelis when they occupied it. And then there's people in the South who were. Um, and so I think that's why you have such differing views. But I think that's a really rosy view of what would happen. I mean, if Lebanon, you know, peace wouldn't literally, wouldn't actually be peace on a level playing field. It would be submission. It would be complete submission, like to whatever the Israelis and Americans want. And it's, uh, it's not going to happen. I mean, it's, there's, it's, it can't, it's just not going to happen in this country because you have, because Hezbollah and Israel are at war. But that aside, like it's, you know, peace would just be whatever the Israelis want. It wouldn't, there wouldn't be some like even level negotiation here where both sides get something. Yeah, obviously, that's not the way the world works. <laughs> obviously, I'm playing devil, devil's advocate here because right, right, people have course, this conversation, course, yeah. and it's a fair conversation. Right. And 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 there are so many factors at play that it's hard to to really wrap your mind around everything that's there. And people are just so fed up with the situation in that in this country that they they really do want to find a solution. So obviously, if that's something that's on the table, people want to imagine that it could be helpful or to, to look for something that might work to solve the problem. That, that we're having here. But um, we, we're not going to focus too much on that. The wars and the uprisings that have been waged in the rest of the Middle East, most people understand that there have been some intervention by American intelligence. You've written about this, uh, I think, in your experience as a journalist. When you look back at the last few decades in the region, how would you describe the U.S.'s foreign policy? <laughs> completely destructive. I mean, just like nothing, there's nothing positive about it. Just completely destructive uh, and deadly um, and murderous. I mean, it's like, where do you begin? The, the Iraq war that was based on a lie that just completely like it just completely collapsed a society and is the reason that we had the rise of al-Qaeda in this region and ISIS. Um, then, you know, there's what the U.S. has done and did in Syria, where it spent, you know, the big one of the I think it might be the biggest covert uh, program in U.S. history to arm and fund an insurgency to try to collapse yet another government. You know, then there's the sanctions that have just terrorized the region economically. Um, and that's not even talking about, you know, arming the Israelis to, you know, commit war crime after war crime after war crime, um, selling weapons to the Saudis and the UAE to just completely, you know, destroy Yemen. Um, and the list goes on. It's been completely destructive. Um, and, you know, all about control and hegemony and empire. Um, and it's, you know, I don't know, I don't know where else to go with it. I'm not sure what else there is to destroy. I mean, there is Iran, um, but, you know, it's just one state after another. I guess if you could describe like the U.S. policy in just like a phrase or even a one term, it would, it would be state collapse. That's what the U.S. has done. It's just collapsed one state after another um, in the name of, you know, in the name of weapons of mass destruction, in the name of, you know, humanitarian intervention. I mean, not Libya. I forgot about Libya. It's like hard to remember everything all at once. You know, the U.S. helped collapse the state of Libya. And as a result, you had, 
you you now have a country with this like power vacuum and these rival militias constantly fighting each other and open air slave markets. I mean, it's actually like you can't write this stuff um, and it needs to stop like it needs to stop. Did you just it's say just open air slave markets? Yeah, there there was like slavery. It brought slavery back to Libya. They were selling people as slaves in Libya as a result of like having no, you know, no state anymore and just having a bunch of like rival extremist factions in charge. And that's what happens when you collapse states. And this is, you know, this is a real it's I, you know, I don't know with the U.S. It's hard to tell if it's intentional or not. It's this sort of like destroying countries without a plan for what to do in the aftermath. Um and as a result, I mean, it's just been a complete chaos and destruction. Uh, and so I hope that this is like, you know, maybe this is like one hopeful thing I can say. I've, it seems like maybe we're reaching sort of an end to that chapter. I hesitate to say that, actually, because I don't know what else there is to like collapse. But I think, you know, the U.S. policy in this region for the last forever has been awful, but particularly the last 20 years 30 years maybe, has been just completely devastating. And it's still devastating. I mean, there's these sanctions, you know, on Syria that have turned it into one of the poorest countries in the world on top of, you know, you can say you can say what you want about Syria and the internal problem, problems it has. It has many. Um, however, the U.S. role there has been nothing but, like, has been nothing but destructive. Um, and, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's basically taken these formerly stable countries um, that had like high liter literacy rates and had pretty decent economies and turned them into like these sort of post-apocalyptic hellholes. And it's awful. Um, and all, you know, all in the name of basically just like resource extraction and, you know, domination and hegemony. Yeah. What happened in Syria is really sad. I, I was there before the war visiting and it was a peaceful place. And like you said, high literacy rate, They have beautiful craftsmanships. There was a clean city. Um, you didn't feel like it, there was danger or violence mm -hmm. or chaos the way that, you know, people see in the American media. But are you of the belief then that the U.S. should never interfere in any country that's not their own? I mean, it depends. Yeah, I guess so. Like in the case of the U.S., yes, because interference is always, you know, to benefit to benefit American elites and American businesses. It's not to help people. I mean, if the U.S. was some, like, utopian, lovely country that was, like, you know, in the business of actually helping, it'd be one thing. But it's this, like, it's like one of them, it's, it's this global empire that has, you know, this massive military apparatus that seeks to, you know, extract resources and just control everything in the name of, you know, profit. Um, and so, yes, when the U.S. interferes, it's... You know, and its track record sucks. Like everything I just described, you know, is so terrible that, yes, I don't think the U.S. should be interfering. I mean, I can't even, I can't think of a country where the U.S. has interfered, where things have gotten better. It's always like to either collapse it or to install like some right wing dictator or to like overthrow a socialist or, um, you know, to like destroy a country, to destroy a country's economy until it submits. I mean, that's what it does. I, whether it's Latin America or Africa or the Middle East or Asia, like the last 100 years of U.S. history have proven that U.S. interference like pretty much only leads to destruction. I mean, if you can think of anything that I'm missing where it's benefited people. Um, 
I mean, <laughs> I yeah, <laughs> definitely. But I mean, the U.S. is still in the world kind of a symbol of democracy. They're champions for human rights. Not to say that they're perfect and they haven't done everything that you've done. But when a country, let's say, when there's a massacre, for example, in Ru Rwanda in 1994, when over 800,000 people were killed, It, that was an instance where the U.S. had kind of a leg to stand on to say, you know what, we're going to go interfere because this cannot go on. So in a case like that, for example, should they just stand aside because it's none of their business? Because, I mean, is that is that what you think? And and well, I mean, and, and think, here's my I second. That... Yeah. Let me let go me ahead, say the second thing that I was thinking about is that. If the U.S. wasn't interfering in all these countries, another country probably would. For instance, Russia. For instance, in Syria. If it's basically a battle between Russia and U.S. interference, right? And this happens in many countries and it's always going to happen. That's part of the way the world works, unfortunately. So to say, let's say that the U.S. is not involved in a country, would it be better if China, for example, you know, filled that vacuum You know what I mean? It's it's a touchy like question. It's hard to answer. I mean, I don't think so because it's 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 assuming that China and Russia have an imperialist system that is the equivalent of the U.S. I mean, the U.S. is the global superpower. Um, there's maybe a little bit of competition economically from China, but certainly Russia is nowhere near on the same like. Uh, playing field as the U.S. It's not a very rich country. It doesn't have, I mean, Russia and China don't have military bases all over the world. They don't even come close. So I don't think it's like an issue of if the U.S. doesn't interfere, China or Russia will. Um, these countries all have different interests. Uh, and I think that, you know, this, this argument over like, if there's like a massacre, should the U.S. stand aside? I mean, this is an argument that's used, that's been used for the past like two decades. Uh, to justify the destruction of one country after another. Well, you know, they just like, th you know, they just throw in Rwanda uh, and nobody throws that in actually meaning it. They throw it in as like a justification for intervening militarily in other countries. Uh, and like I just, you know, laid out, like none of those have worked out so well. You know, it, it's this, the U.S. has abused this notion of humanitarian intervention, this responsibility to protect, as they call it, in order to its agenda, its imperialist, destructive agenda around the world. So, I mean, at some point you have to say like enough. Um, I, I, but I really don't, you know, I, I think that what, what I would like to see, I think that what would, would be ideal is like a world where you don't have this one massive superpower controlling everything, where you have like a multipolar world which is obviously something the U.S. is very much against, but a multipolar world where there's countries that actually cooperate with each other on really important issues. Like when you mentioned Russia and China, like I think the U.S. and Russia and China should be cooperating with each other on stopping, you know, collapse from climate change. Like it would be really great if that was something these countries were focused on instead of like, you know, running around the world like trying to, to dominate with your military bases. Um, so, I mean, that's what I'd like to see. I don't think that's what you're going to see. And I also, you know, you mentioned like the U.S. being a symbol of democracy. You know, I, I grew up in the U.S. Um, you know, I still live there sometimes. My family's there. And I don't see a democracy. I see a country that's run by a handful of corporations where they literally decide everything. They make government policy. They write government policy. They fund all our, our politicians. And it actually makes me sad that that system is looked at as being something that should be replicated. 
Like, it's not a real democracy. It's a huge sham. And as far as human rights are concerned, I mean, you know, we have the biggest prison population in the world. We put minors, we put children in solitary confinement. Julian Assange, the UK just rejected the US uh, request to have Julian Assange extradited because our prison system is so horrendous, they were afraid he would commit suicide if he was moved to a US prison. Um, so, I mean, we have our issues. We have people who are killed by police on a pretty regular basis. And as a result, you know, we have these, you know, these uprisings about it. Um, the, I mean, I, I could go on. Like, I'm not saying the U.S. isn't the worst country in the world. I, I love many things about it. Like, it made me who I am. But at the same time, like, I don't think that it's right to to look to the U.S. as some beacon of, like, freedom and democracy because it's not. Um and it, it is. It's the richest country in the world. And it has the potential. It has the potential to be those things. But unfortunately, because, you know, the people who live there aren't actually in charge, it's just like a bunch of rich people who decide everything. It's not what it could be. Well, You've talked on your podcasts about what's happening in the U.S. Poverty is through the roof. I know you were saying about how Americans are stealing stuff from supermarkets. Obviously, people are getting evicted from their homes in record numbers. The country is extremely divided right now. You have armed groups just itching for a major fight. Do you think that the U.S. is falling apart? I mean, I don't think it's falling apart. I think that that is like, Yeah, I don't I know. I don't think it's like that bad. I do, I do think, however, that you're 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 seeing um, you're certainly seeing something like there's there's this like anti-establishment sentiment. There's an understanding across the country that something is wrong with the way things are running. But, you know, there's definitely a huge polarization about what the cause of that problem is. You know, on this one side, I mean, just to really simplify it on this one side, you have, you know, the people on the right, on the far right, the sort of Trump supporter types um, who, you know, think like <laughs> the left is responsible and like have all these crazy wild conspiracy theories about, you know, like elites and pedophile rings and they're just completely down a rabbit hole. <laughs> and and then you have like another, but you, you know, I think the, the sort of hopeful point is that you have like Uh, the other side of people who are, you know, the people who came out and protested when George Floyd was killed. Um, the people who are, you know, demanding things like healthcare, which like every other developed country gives its citizens, except the United States. Um, I think you do have a rise of like progressive leftist politics. That's really positive, And hopefully if it's organized in the right way, could lead to something really, really good. So I don't think it's like all doom and gloom for the U S Um, I don't think it's like, you know, I also think it's just completely alarmist to think it's like about to descend into civil war. I know sometimes looking from like afar, it seems like that, but it's not quite that way. I mean, the U.S. is still like a functioning country. Um, so I, yeah, I, I think like moving forward, you know, I think also it depends what happens over the next four years. Like now that Democrats are going to be in charge again, you know, they have an opportunity to actually push for some like policies that would lessen economic inequality. Um, and I think that could definitely lead to some positive developments in the U.S. But if they spend the next four years doing what they did before, which is just kind of like, 
you know, keeping the stat, which is likely what will happen, which is, you know, just keeping with the status quo and allowing economic inequality, the economic divide to, to grow, to grow deeper. Then I think that, you know, my, what I fear is that you're going to have some like far right lunatic who's way more effective in charming the Donald Trump rise up and like end up coming to power. I hope that doesn't happen. Um, but, you know, it remains to be seen what the Biden administration does and if these sort of like new progressive politicians who've been elected are actually able to push for anything useful. And to bring people together. People are so angry right now. Every the, the, Both sides are hating each other to the point where no one listens to each other, you know, at all. And if it just gets worse, then I think that your idea of having a lunatic in the next election <laughs> is, is a real possibility. Um, do you think there's a shortage of proper media organizations in the Middle East that are creating content that's an alternative to the mainstream media? Um, I mean, yeah, you know, like I, when it comes to, like, you mean like actual Middle Eastern based uh, yes. outlets? Yes. I mean, yeah, I think one of the problems in the Middle East is like, it's, it's actually the same problem you see in the States. It's like media is all owned by like either rich people or countries. And that's kind of all you have. And it's, you know, like there are smaller outlets like that are, um, trying to make it, but it's hard without the funding. It's and it, it, We have the same problem in the U.S. I think you probably see this problem replicated around the world. Um, it's more and more difficult to reach a mass audience of people unless you have like a billionaire backing you or unless you have like a country backing you. And as a result, like people are, you know, the most people are consuming media that has like these, this huge agenda behind it. Um, and they don't always quite know what, and when you're doing that, it's kind of like the same problem you have online where you end up like in this echo chamber of just like hearing what you already believe. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's, I don't think that's just like a Middle East problem. I think it's a problem like everywhere. Uh, and I'm not really sure what the answer to that is. I mean, at one point people thought, oh, maybe social media is the answer to this, but now social media has the same problem and social media companies are kind of the same too. They're all owned by like you know, these Silicon Valley tech giants, um, you know, and like, and it just ends up like siloing people more and more. And so I think at the end of the day, like, you know, I think it, it comes down to like returning to on the ground organizing. I'm not an organizer, so I can't really speak to that. I'm not, I don't call, I'm not an activist, but like, I think that that would kind of be the antidote to it is like actual, like in person, meeting and talking and organizing. But I guess under COVID, you can't really do that. Yeah. But I feel like, I mean, I know you write, you've written for The Gray Zone, a website that I was checking out today. And it's a really great website. I mean, it looks good. There's some great content on there. There's a lot of independent media in the U.S. that is being funded by I guess, by the audience. And I imagine yeah. that there are a bunch of a few billionaires and millionaires who are funding, you know, media that suits their purposes. Is this is that a thing in the Middle East? I feel like most of the there's not so many outlets and they seem pretty fringe and they don't look as sleek as the ones in the U.S. Do you agree? Um, I mean, I guess like, I don't really know. I don't really know of like the independent, the independent media, like atmosphere in the Middle East very well. Like I, you know, I'm not that familiar with it. I don't really consume like online media in the Middle East, like I would in America. Um, but yeah, I mean, that would, it would make sense though, for the U S to have more of that. I mean, the U S has a way bigger population. Um, 
And it is like easier. That's kind of the new thing, this sort of like crowdfunding, I guess you could call it crowdfunded media. We have it like with podcasts, we have it with websites, we have, you know, people have their own Patreons. And I guess that hasn't really reached the Middle East yet, has it? Like, I don't, you're, that's a good point. Like, I don't really see people utilizing uh, those tools here yet. I imagine at some point they might, though it might also be because like, you know, it depends what country you're in. You probably can't have a Patreon in Syria yeah. <laughs> because of sanctions. The, first of all, the whole online payment thing is a challenge in some of these countries. Well, for but, Lebanon. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. for some other yeah. countries, too. Um, and also even the, the social media access. But I think that people are using those tools that you're talking about, but more for fundraising, for for humanitarian causes, or right. but not so much for media. So maybe it's just lagging behind. I'm not sure. But I think it's an it's interesting... It's like music. Yeah, exactly. It's like when I would come here as a kid and like songs from 10 years ago were just, were just like <laughs> making it into Lebanon. Yes. Maybe that's the case with the crowdfunding media. Exactly. It'll eventually find exactly. its way. Exactly. So before I let you go, I want to talk to you a little bit about money, because I heard you talking about that on one of your recent podcasts. You live in Lebanon, so you know how money can lose almost all of its value, basically, overnight, which is what happened here. And the banks yeah. took people's money. People don't have access to their money. I know you're not an economist, but do you think this could happen in the U.S.? So I don't think it could happen overnight in the U.S. And that's because, you know, the U.S. can print like trillions of dollars as it has since 2008. And it doesn't make that much of a dent, like, like because the dollar is backed by the military. Like the U.S. has these like, you know, almost a thousand military bases around the world. It's this very powerful country. And also oil is traded in U.S. dollars, which is what like gives it value. But, you know, my opinion is like, you know, what happened in Lebanon was this big Ponzi scheme. Right. It was like the country was based, the whole economy was based on this Ponzi scheme and it all came crashing down. And that's why everybody, you know, lost money is because it didn't actually exist. It was all like fake. And that's kind of how most economic systems around the world run, although Lebanon was a bit extreme in its Ponzi scheme. But at the end of the day, that money doesn't actually exist. It's like all kinds of digital. Uh, if everybody in the U.S. went to the bank to try to take out their money, they wouldn't be able to because it's not actually there. But I don't think you're going to have that problem necessarily. Like it's more in countries like the reason in Lebanon, like you can't like Lebanon's been printing so much of uh, so much of its local currency. Uh, but it's just been exacerbating the inflation problem because Lebanon doesn't have, you know, it's not the U.S. It doesn't have the kind of value for its currency that the U.S. dollar has. Like the U.S. dollar has oil and military. Yeah. You know, Lebanon doesn't have that. So it's definitely in a different position than America. But of course, like, yeah, you could like the U.S. at the same time, like it, it can't just print money indefinitely. Like eventually that's going to give. I don't know when or how, but eventually that's going to give. And so You know, I don't think it's right to just assume that because you're an American and you have your money in an American bank, like your money is always going to exist and be safe. But it's definitely like better than having your money in a Lebanese bank. That much I do know. I'm not an economist, but that much I do know. Yeah, that's good. You're sticking to facts like a proper journalist. But some people are predicting a massive inflation in the U.S., people who are deeply involved with the business uh, community and with trading and I've that been, stuff. Yeah, I've been yeah. here. I've been hearing this and I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, it, it makes sense. Like you can't just print money 
I, I don't know how many trillions. It's like some. It's a crazy amount of money the U.S. has printed since the uh, recession in 2008. Um, and like it, it makes it's logical that you can't do that without inflation happening. Inflation has happened to some degree, but it's been kind of controlled like by the government. But yeah, at some point, like that's going to give it. I've heard that too. I don't, I'm not, like, I don't, I'm not great when it comes to understanding economics. So like, I don't really understand the mechanics of it, but I have seen economists warning about that as well. So maybe it's in time to, I don't know, like invest in Bitcoin. Yeah. I've been thinking a lot about <laughs> cryptocurrency. Actually, I spoke to a guy about it who kind of educated me on it. And it's really interesting. The way it works is supposed to protect you against overprinting of money because it's digital and mathematical in a way where you can't have these Ponzi schemes. But then again, you hear about scams, you hear about Bitcoins disappearing. So I'm not sure. For me, it's just so complicated. I need like, I need, yeah, me to, too. I need a butler and I need like a financial <laughs> advisor to tell me like what to do. <laughs> right. There's the other thing too, is like, there's people, I mean, there's also with Bitcoin, it's like, if you invested, I think if you bought one, like a year ago or something, you would have made like 20,000 or it was like $10,000 or something. And now it's like one Bitcoin's worth like 20. I don't even understand how it works, but if people, I guess if people invest in the right things, they can just like sit on their investment and make money off of it. Yes. So it's also just like about luck. Yeah. Or you could just buy like collectible shoes. <laughs> yeah, there's that. Or like real estate. I don't know. I don't have that kind of money to even consider. Yeah, exactly. I'm well, sitting here talking like I'm sitting on millions of dollars. In Beirut, it's like you're lucky if yeah. you can buy like a jar of almond milk. <laughs> oh my God. It's, it's unbelievable. Yeah. I was like the other day there was like cheese. There was like, I was trying to buy cheese and even the cost at like the black market dollar rate was outrageous. I was like, even if I had dollars, like this wouldn't, this doesn't make any sense. I know. I totally agree. Because so the thing expensive? is, it was already expensive to begin with because the tariffs yeah. in this country were already so high. Everything imported was like twice as much as what you would pay in the original yep. country. And now with the, with the, with the devaluation, it's just ridiculous. I know I was going to buy some cheese the other day too. I was like, no, that's okay. <laughs> I guess I'm not going to have cheese. No in cheese. Eggs. That's like, that's kind of what I went with. Yeah. <laughs> so sad and the fact that we're laughing about it so actually that leads me to my last and final question where on a daily basis do you feel safer in Beirut or in Fairfax Virginia where you grew up and I imagine you travel back and forth to oh my gosh so after that's a that's a hard question because before this year I would have said like I feel the same in both places but this is, I mean, this has been a really tough year for Lebanon. Um, after the explosion, especially, like, I, I felt, I, I still kind of feel a little jittery being here sometimes because it, it just kind of takes away your level of, like, it's like something you can't control and it makes you feel like th this country is like how it's like held together by glue or something. And it's like always ready to fall apart. I don't know if you had the same feeling after the explosion, but um, definitely now I would say Fairfax, Virginia. Uh, because of the current situation around the world, especially with the explosion, but with the, after the explosion and with COVID. And I know it's weird to say that coming from the U.S. because the U.S. has such bad COVID numbers, but so does Lebanon. So, um, but, to, but that said, like, I, I was really lucky. Nothing, you know, I wasn't injured. Nothing terrible happened to me. Um, so, you know, I feel like I, I'm very safe here now, but, you know, there is something to be said about having a functioning state, Um, and the fact that the Lebanon doesn't have one <laughs> definitely, you know, makes me feel 
a bit insecure being here in a way that I don't necessarily feel when I'm in Virginia. Yeah. Are you planning on leaving? Um, not right now. Right. I mean, as well, like not, not now, like I want to be here. I really like being here. Um, but I mean, it's, it's, you know, there are some things that are very difficult about being here that I'm sure you're well aware of. Like the money situation is weird. It's difficult to deal with. Um, you know, it's strange being in like, it's strange being in a country that lacks so many services where everything is just so overpriced, like for not so great services. You know what I mean? Like, um, but for, for now I'm here, we'll see, you know, in, in the future, I'm not sure if I'll remain here mostly like for work and stuff, but, uh, we'll see. I don't know. What do you like? Do you plan on staying here indefinitely? Is this like home for you? For the time being or for the long run? Yeah, for, for the time being. Only time will tell. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we'll see. So is are you working on anything that you want to share with us? Um, I mean, right now I like, you know, have this podcast I just started uh, with the outlet I work for. I don't know. Am I allowed to like curse on your show? Because there's a curse word in the name of the podcast. Yeah. I, well, please go ahead. Of course you are. Okay. It's so a it's podcast. Called, it's called It's called Left Bitches. Um, you can listen to it pretty much anywhere you listen to podcasts, Spotify, Apple podcasts, we're on Patreon as well. Um, and then you can follow my work. You know, I, I post most of my stuff at my own website, raniacalic.com, but you can also follow us on, at Soapbox on Instagram, um, and on, in the now on Twitter. Yeah. I don't think bitches is a curse word. It's, it's a, it's a dog. It's I don't a think female so dog. Either, but or, the, yeah, exactly. The good point. Yeah. I don't think so either, but some people get really touchy. So like, I don't. <laughs> but, but isn't it called left bitches who are right like who that's the right. rest of it yeah i love the title yeah, it's yeah, yeah. really awesome <laughs> thank you it's really thank cool you. so are your co-hosts in the u.s yeah I, i'm here and then they're mostly in la and we have another one in colorado um but yeah the rest of them are in la that's where our office is so and you know i, I actually feel really lucky they get to do it because like these are people i work with but they're also like my friends uh, and you know, we're all like politically left, but we don't always agree on everything. We're just like, you know, different left tendencies. So I appreciate that too. So it's not always just like us agreeing with each other. Sometimes yeah. we get into little debates, which is nice, but yeah, it's really fun to do. Um, and I, I'm really enjoying it. And you know, it's, we just, I think we've been doing it for like two months now. Oh, only. um, yeah, it's pretty, it's very new. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's just been like really fun. Cause it's also, it's also like a therapy session, you know, when you're on the left, it's like, especially in the U S right now, the left is so weak. So it's like, just nice to be able to like, talk about what's happening with other people who are also like your friends, you know, I think the right would disagree with that statement. They would not say that the left is weak. They would <laughs> yeah, they say think, that the left has hijacked so the, the like academia <laughs> in the country, in the U S and that they're dominating everything. I wish, you know, yeah. I wish we were in charge. I wish we were in charge of America the way the right thinks we are. It'd be awesome. Like when they're, when they're like Joe Biden, when they're like, Joe Biden's a communist. I'm like, oh, that'd be so great. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Joe Biden's a really? socialist. Are you like full-fledged, like pro-communism? Not necessarily, but it'd be so cool if Joe Biden was like, we don't have healthcare in the U.S. See, you're, you're Canadian, so you don't, you don't know. I know. Don't I know. know. I lived in Texas for 10 years. I know. Oh, uh, you did. Okay. Yeah. So you do know. It's like man, we don't have a, like, it's, it's crazy. Like the things that we just don't get that, you know, Europeans get without even thinking about. And if they didn't have, they'd like be rioting. 
But, you know, we're used to it. I don't think you need communism, though, to have a proper health care. I'm not sure. I think communism no, exactly. goes a bit further. That's what's funny about it is you absolutely don't. But if Joe Biden was a socialist or a communist or whatever the you know right thinks he was, we definitely have health care. So that'd be pretty awesome in my book. But instead, you know, uh, we've got somebody who, like, doesn't want to cancel student debt and wants to protect private health insurance companies. So... Here we are. <laughs> Your voice just changed like what what what. Cuz it's like it's like I you know there's it's it's weird in the US right now because you know you really are happy that Donald Trump is not going to be president anymore. It's a very positive development. But then it's like oh god, Joe Biden? Like really Joe of all the people Joe Biden? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so your podcast is really great, by the way. I thought it was been, it's been going on longer than two months. I love the characters that you've basically given each each one of you like a character, <laughs> like what, hippie bitch, and then uh, what are what are the names of, there's of your bro bitch? Yeah, there's bro bitch. There's bro one, bitch is the best. One man on our show. Yeah, yeah. that's hilarious. Like by the way, <laughs> <laughs> I love that. It's really funny. <laughs> yeah, I know it's really fun. Thank it was you. so great chatting with you, and we should meet up sometime absolutely it'd be really great i would love to do that it was really this was really like a pleasant conversation we should go for cheese <laughs> we for should cheese. have a cheese night <laughs> i would love to a cheese night we'll spend all our money on cheese <laughs> why not let's live a little <laughs> so best of luck with everything thank you so much i really appreciate you having me on it was a pleasure having you take care you too bye bye That's it. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to like and subscribe to the podcast. See you soon, my friends.